Today on Ag News Daily. So we just received $95 million through this grant. And 70 million of that is going directly to cost share for farmers to take on cover crops. Another 20 million is going towards technical assistance. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell flying solo down here from Kansas City. Tanner is headed to Florida today to a sugar conference or convention of some sort. Tanner, sorry I didn't pay attention to you when you told me this, but nonetheless, he might bring us some updates down there from Florida as he heads into his weekend a little early with the sugar folks down there in Florida. But nonetheless, I am having some great conversations this week in Kansas City with folks all across the ag space, talking to farm broadcasters about things that are going on in their neck of the woods. Today is going to be a trade talk, which is really a reverse trade show. So usually when you hit a trade show like Commodity Classic, booths are trying to sell you products or get you engaged with their upcoming launch of you know a new product. But at trade talk, they're pitching media. So there won't be any farmers in the room. Well, unless we have farm broadcasters that also double as farmers. But otherwise, it'll be a group full of broadcasters and reporters making their way through the various booths that will be at Trade Talk and the various businesses that will be there. So I'll be bringing you some conversations from the Trade Talk here over the next few weeks. It's going to be some really great stuff. I've got some good notes lined up of folks I want to talk to. And you'll get to hear that all here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. But as we jump into some news for today... It appears that we're going to see some storm systems prior to Thanksgiving. Had a really great session yesterday with Drew Lerner to talk a little bit of the longer term forecast for the U.S. and South America. So we'll try to get that edited down so our listeners can take a peek at what's ahead. But as far as the short term forecasts go here, the major storm system that's heading into most of the country ahead of Thanksgiving is going to be a big one. A trowel off the west coast will shift into the southwest this weekend, and it'll bring quite a storm system with it through California and the Four Corners area. Then it'll start to hit the central and southern plains on Saturday night or Sunday morning, and then the storm system should develop a deeper, low-pressure center, arc through the northeast, and then head into the midwest the 20th, 21st, and wrap up finally in the Hudson Bay on the 22nd. But after that storm system sweeps through, it's going to be bringing some cooler temperatures along with it. It's been very warm or abnormally warm for this time of year. Certainly it has been down here in Kansas City. I think highs of almost 70 degrees while I've been down here. And I remember in vast contrast last year, we had snow while we were in Kansas City this time last year. But ahead of these warmer temperatures, we will see, or after these warmer temperatures, I should say, we will see some really, really cool temperatures. Anywhere from, let's see here, 5 to 15 degrees lower than what it currently is right now. So maybe temperatures in the 40s and 50s for some folks could be even cooler than that in areas to the north. But nonetheless, we will start to see hopefully increasing temperatures once again just prior to Thanksgiving. So just a short-term little blip on the radar here. It seems like the weather really can't decide what it wants to do as of lately. Well, we had a momentous meeting between President Biden and President Xi on Wednesday, which is the first time in his presidential 
campaign here that President Biden has sat down with the Chinese leader, of course. The two took to a four-hour meeting in San Francisco where they discussed a variety of different issues that have strained U.S.-Chinese relations. Most of all, they discussed opening reopening the presidential hotline between the two countries. They agreed to resume military-to-military communications and overall to work to curb fentanyl production, which is showing some tangible progress for their first face-to-face talk in years. However, very shortly after the two met and concluded their four-hour meeting, President Biden took to a solo press conference where he was pressed by reporters whether or not he still viewed President Xi as a dictator. Apparently back in June, he mentioned this in a press conference that he thought President Xi was a dictator. And President Biden said, quote, look, he is. He's a dictator in the sense that he's a guy who runs a country that is a communist country that's based on a form of government totally different from ours. In response to that, that did not make Chinese foreign ministry very happy and said that they strongly opposed the remarks made by the White House. Didn't mention Biden specifically, but they said it was an extremely wrong and irresponsible political manipulation. So that might have added a little fuel to the fire there. Uh, Post that good meeting, it sounded like they had. That might not have gone over so well for Chinese diplomats. But in some other geopolitical news here, Ukraine has reached an official agreement with the British government to help create a subsidized insurance program for shippers wanting to buy commodities at the Ukrainian ports. Of course, as we know, insurance to cover shipments and cargoes heading in and out of the Black Sea region skyrocketed since the Russian-Ukraine war broke out. And costly spikes have also recently led to higher been led higher by some civilian ships that were also hit by Russian missiles as well. But this new program contracted between the US or excuse me, between the British government and the Ukraine would allow commodity shippers wishing to buy grain and other commodities from Ukrainian ports to have a more affordable insurance option. When we look at current Ukrainian exports, they're currently running three and a half to four million metric tons per month. And the pace they really need to support agriculture in Ukraine is five to six million metric tons to get product out of the country and get it to into the hands of those who need it. So that is the latest headline there coming to us from Ukraine. Big news in yesterday's NOPA soybean crush numbers as we recorded the highest record monthly crush total for the month of October. NOPA estimated that the total crush for the month of October was 189.8 million bushels of October the highest total ever for any month. This crush pace increased about 14.7% from September and was almost 3% above last year's total as well as more soybeans are, of course, flowing into the supply chain. NOPA data implies that a full October crush of 202 million bushels would also be an all-time record. Uh, We also saw soy oil stocks totaled about a little not quite 1.1 billion pounds at the end of October, down compared to the month prior in September. And soy oil stocks fell for a sixth straight month as renewable diesel 
use continues to use more soy oil than expected. So those are all fairly favorable conditions there for soybeans longer term because as you know that that was an interesting discussion we had during a kind of a markets panel yesterday the question was raised of course related to all of the soy processing and crush facilities that are going to be coming online do we have enough demand to keep up with you know the increase in soy crush where is it headed and how's that going to change the soybean market long term so we'll be sharing some of those remarks here on the podcast over the next few weeks as well. Last headline I have here is retail fertilizer prices. As we begin began the month of November, we had no significant changes. DTN's retail fertilizer tracker tracked by tracked the first week of November of 2023 with mixed prices to begin the month. Five fertilizers were slightly higher compared to last month, while the remaining three were down just a tad. For the first time in several months, no fertilizer was up or down a considerable considerable amount, which is of course anything over a 5% move or more. Going to be catting Going to be catching up with Josh Linville of Stonex here to chat fertilizer prices. So I'll be sure to we'll be sure to share that story on the podcast here coming up in the next few weeks. Sorry, I don't have more information for our folks. I just keep saying the next few weeks, but we're going to have a lot of action-packed conversations as we start to pull together all of the conversations that I had down here in Kansas City. But the last thing I have to share for our listeners today is the markets. As we head into the opening trade session here, markets are pushing lower, especially in the soybean contracts as we got some timely rain in Brazil where they could certainly use it. And we're watching, of course, harvest wrap up here in the United States with better than expected yields. That's certainly pushing soybeans lower this morning as we take a look here. November soybeans down 11.5 cents. We'll open this morning at 13.02 and a half. December corn down a penny and three quarters at 4.69. December Chicago wheat down five and a half cents in the overnight opening this morning at 5.55. December hard red winter wheat down two and a half pennies at 6.37. And December spring wheat down a penny and a quarter at 7.34. Livestock and where they took a break yesterday to open this morning here. December live cattle added a dollar ninety two and a half yesterday. Opening this morning at a buck seventy-seven seventy-seven, January feeder cattle up a dollar ninety on the board yesterday to open this morning at two thirty ninety, and December lean hogs had a little bit of a loss yesterday, closing a dollar twenty-five lower, opening up this morning at seventy-one oh five. Well, I had the pleasure of moderating a panel at the National Association of Farm Broadcasters annual convention looking at the new Farmers for Soil Health program. The goal behind this program really is to try and get 30 million acres of cover crops by the year 2030. Currently, the USDA estimates that we're maybe somewhere around 15 million acres. So we have to double the amount of cover crops we see in the United States today. So this new Farmers for Soil Health program is currently going on right now for farmers in 20 different states that can enroll in a cost-sharing program through the Farmers for Soil Health program. 
This current program is a combination of corn, pork, and soy commodity groups working together at a national level as well as a local level as well, in partnership with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and also USDA's Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities. As we think about enrolling or doubling in size here to get 20 to get 30 million acres by 2030, the question has been posed, how do we get farmers to voluntarily enroll for the program? And therefore, these commodity groups, National Corn Growers Association, the United Soybean Board, and National Pork Board has worked together to create an assistance program to help farmers get enrolled in the program. Now, this program is a little bit different because participating farmers have two ways to get paid. For those farmers that are already implementing some cover crops or sustainable ag practices, they can get paid as of right now. $2 per acre for those farmers already using sustainable practices. And for those farmers that are looking at potentially implementing some of these sustainability practices on their farms, they can enroll for some cost sharing, which would be a total of $50 per acre over the next three years that those payments would get paid out. So I just wanted to set some framework for our listeners here as we turn it over into that conversation, joined by Lori Isley. She is a current Michigan farmer and on the United Soybean Board as the Communication and Education Committee Chair. Harold Woolley, the current National Corn Growers Association president, who we've had on the podcast here before, and also a farmer from Minnesota, although he's working to transition out of his family farm, as he'll later share, and Jack Cornell with the United Soybean Board. He is currently the director of Sustainable Supply, but also has a background in agronomy, which makes him really helpful to share some of the technical support that these commodity groups are providing for the program. So without further ado, let's dive into each of those three panelists' background. Thank you, Delaney, and and good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be able to join you here today, and especially to talk about Farmers for Soil Health, which is a program um, that we're just really excited to be a part of. It's it's an example of um, USB's emphasis on partnerships and our ability to work with other organizations such as, as corn and pork, and we just are really excited about the potential to double those cover crop acres. Um, my husband and I and our son farm in southeastern Michigan. We're really just north of Toledo, Ohio. I won't, I guess I could get my hand out since that's what we do in Michigan is to make sure you know that. Um, but we farm about 1,100 acres of corn and soybeans. We've been using conservation um, for many years. We've had cover crops for about the past 15 years. We've seen some long-term benefits from that and I'm excited to be able to share some of what we see as um, rationale for moving people forward into this program. Great. Jack, what about you? You serve with the United Soybean Board on their staff there, so you have an interesting insight into how this program was actually put together. Yeah, so I'm Jack Cornell. I'm really excited to tell you guys about kind of all the exciting opportunities that farmers have within this space and kind of uh, some of the details within our program that really are going to help farmers with not only uh, adopting uh, cover crops, but a lot of the technical assistance that comes along with our program. Um, and so it's it's really interesting, you know, taking this from an, an idea and a concept to actually having something where now we can pay farmers for taking on sustainability activities on the farm, right? So our program is really geared towards getting funding from 
the high level and then getting it all the way down to the farm, right? So it's not getting eaten up by other other programs or other organizations. It's really geared specifically to help de-risk any of the any farm practices and be very farmer centric. Great. Harold, last but not least, you're the newest NCGA president, which is really exciting, but you're also a Minnesotan farmer, so share with our listeners a little bit about some of the operational practices that you have on your farm. Well, thank you, Delaney. Uh, you're absolutely right. Started my term October 1st, so this is the first meeting that kicks off the meeting season, so very glad to be here today and to talk about cover crops and sustainability and soil health. Uh, I am well down the path of transitioning the farm to my son. And we have uh, you know, an interesting farm. Uh, it is uh, a mixture of sand and loams. And, and the sandy soil needs to be protected from wind and water erosion. So this fall, we decided to try cover crops on 20 acres that's uh, right near the building site up on the hill where all the pioneers used to build their homesteads. Uh, we used a custom applicator, so we hired a, a neighbor to come in and seed into the standing soybeans. Because of the drought and the sandy soil, There, he had no trouble uh, driving down the rows and, and getting the seed on. We were very fortunate to get a half inch of rain right afterwards, so the seed all grew. So we have a nice cover crop that's going to protect that field from wind erosion throughout the winter. So. That's, that's uh, my experience, our, uh, sticking our toe in the water of cover crops on our farm. Well, I think a lot of farmers are going to be sticking their toe in the water of cover crops if they don't already use it because now we're seeing some actual dollars start to flow into rural America through these programs. And, you know, as you think about where we are today, I feel like cover crops and sustainability has obviously been pushed quite a bit by this administration, but it's really starting to become more of a commonplace practice that we hear from farmers. But Jack, as we dig into this program in particular, there's an interesting alignment here between the couple of commodity organizations that are sponsoring today's panel, but also the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. How did this partnership come together, come to fruition? Yeah, so back in 2019, uh, Pork Board... Uh, the pork checkoff, the national corn growers, and the soy checkoff all got together and were like, okay, let's work together in sustainability, right? What can we do? And um, they created an MOU Ag Alliance, and we were working on how, to, how, do, we, how do we create a program that really is, gets down to the grassroots level that really helps farmers. And the Partnership for Climate Smart Commodity Grant came up, an opportunity for us to put in, submit to have some real dollars that can really go back down to the farm level. And so we work with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation to help us to administer that grant. So the National Fish and Wildlife is actually working directly with USDA, and uh, the checkoffs uh, and, the, and the corn growers kind of work as the executive administrators of that grant. And so we help facilitate that. And so, uh, so that's kind of how it's connected. And then um, the, the really exciting part for, for farmers is essentially, so we just received $95 million through this grant. And 70 million of that is going directly to cost share for farmers to take on cover crops. Another 20 million is going towards technical assistance. So it's going towards helping farmers to access those dollars and then also access how to do cover crops or any of those uh, conservation practices, right? So it's not just a cover crop program, it's really to help them facilitate a lot of different things. And then there's another five million there that's really to help facilitate the creation of a marketplace 
for farmers to participate to sell uh, their commodities that are raised under climate smart practices to really access an additional funding. Uh, so it, it's really a cool thing that, you know, it's really giving the farmers a really a great uh, avenue to increase their profitability through these mechanisms. Okay, so I want to make sure I had those numbers right, so everybody in the audience has them too. $70 million is going directly into farmer pockets this next year, a couple of years, to reward them for using these smart practices. And then another $20 million is going to actually supporting them. How do they go about collecting information to get paid out? Is that right? Yes. yes. Okay, great. As you look at climate smart practices, cover crops is the first one that really comes to mind. But Lori and Harold, from your perspective on your operations or maybe what you've seen other farmers doing, I want you to take off your your uh, board hat for a second, your president hat for a second, and think with your farmer hat, what are other practices that qualify as climate smart practices that you've seen either on your operation or others doing? Well, as I mentioned on my farm with sandy soil, I have maintain for ages that residue is precious. So whether that's crop residue or the residue from a cover crop, it's, it's very important to have that on our soil. It, uh, it helps to sequester carbon, it helps improve the soil health, and it helps to build organic matter that retains soil moisture. So residue is precious and cover crops are one of the ways that we can enhance the amount of residue on our fields. Tillage destroys residue. So if uh, we're gonna talk about climate smart practices, we're gonna reduce tillage and either go to no-till. Uh, one of the popular items now is strip-till. Uh, I have a neighbor of mine who is a strip-till farmer, uh, a good friend of mine on the Minnesota Corn Growers Board is a strip-tiller. He does custom strip-tilling. Uh, those are systems that can work. They do take a different set of machinery, so there's some challenges there. Um, as I said, we used a custom operator to, to seed our cover crops. There are custom strip tillers as well. So uh, there's ways to ease into these soil health practices that farmers can use and, and are going to and are switching to. Anything different from your perspective in Michigan? Um, many similarities. Um, most of our soils are, are Brady Sandy Loam as well. We're very flat. And one of the earliest things that we recognized was the need to, to make sure that that soil stays in place. So our goal on our farm is to have a crop on that ground 12 months out of the year. We don't really ever want to see bare soil because we have winds. We've already, I guess, probably that one of the earliest practices that went into place was putting up windbreaks many, many years ago. And after that, we followed, because we are in the Lake Erie watershed, and so we have some, some issues there primarily with water quality, which I think is a really nice blend with, with conservation, certainly, but filter strips along all of our waterways have just been a, a constant practice for us. We've also done some water retention systems, which are designed because we are fully tiled, um, subsurface tiled, and so collecting that water after a heavy rain event and being able to hold that water back into so that one it's available in our field because we don't use any um, irrigation so we really want to make sure that water is available for us has been another area but one that we think is really critical is soil testing so you know exactly what it is that your crops need and you're not applying things that they don't need as well as the use of um, precision techniques in order to both change 
um, fertilizer rates, seeding rates, um, and begin to look at those things. But the cover crops have been a really basic one for us, and we have seen it's not a really quick fix, and I think that's part of the reason why Farmers for Soil Health is set up on a three-year program, um, so that farmers have a chance to begin to see some of the changes that come along with changing the structure of your soil. And that was one of the first things that we began to notice is there's just more tilth to that soil. And we certainly have seen um, an increase in its ability to both absorb water when there's a heavy water event as well as to um, maintain water during dry periods. So those have been what we've, what we've seen. But I guess one of the things we follow is the idea that conservation is really a mindset and our hope is to move people that direction. Well, Lori, I think that's a really good segue into talking about the program a little bit more because this is a voluntary program and we certainly know farmers don't necessarily want to be told how to farm. So how does this effort support it being a voluntary program in providing those technical assistance pieces needed? Yeah, so uh, it's a really, you know, the technical assistance is, is there to help farmers regardless if they sign up or not, right? That's a, another really great thing. And and, and another key component of our program was is that we worked with each of the 20 states to help establish what the technical assistance looks like in their state. So it would have been easier if I would have just said, okay, here's a national program. This is the technical assistance we're rolling out with, right? Instead, what we did was we worked with each individual state. All the state commodity groups participated and said, this is what the technical assistance needs to look like in my state, right? So some of them are uh, farmer advisors, right? Farmers that can help other farmers. Some are looking at, they have state commodity staff that's helping them. Some of them have, they're working with um, the soil and water conservation districts. So the state commodity groups knew the strengths of their state and where the support could come from. And so that was a really unique opportunity for, for, for rolling out this program is, is connecting to the state commodity groups is, are also participating, right? It's not just, you know, the national organizations kind of saying, hey, this is what you need to do in your state. So we have a really strong bonds and partnerships with the state commodity groups that's going to help with the farmer's transition uh, into how do I get this stuff on my farm and how can I transition with that? And, you know, at the same time, they're making money, right? And so that's always the important part, is making sure that that profitability element is always there. So as you think about farmers adopting cover crops, I think there are certainly a lot of farmers that are hesitant to use cover crops for a variety of reasons, cost, they don't maybe know where to get started, etc. What are some of the common themes that you all hear from farmers as far as reasons why they may not be willing to adopt cover crops right now? A lot, a lot of times it's just a hesitation because it's new. And, and there is, um, yeah, there, there is some drawback that it does require termination in the spring and it does require an extra um, trip in the fall. We put ours on aerially. I mean, we have ours flown on over our, our corn and our beans. Sometimes your coverage isn't quite as uniform, but it does allow us to just hire that done. And so it's one less job we have to make sure we have time for in the, in the fall. So that's one of the areas um, for other people. It's a it's a cost factor. I mean, it, it costs us about thirty five dollars an acre to do to do cover crops. So so even with you know with this payment, it does take a major chunk of it. But there is still some some cost involved with it. And with the termination one, we did we had a very dry spring in Michigan, and I think across a lot of the the Midwest, and we had some areas of cover crop that had terminated that we were very concerned hadn't 
died fast enough that they were pulling moisture when we really, really in, were in need of that moisture. We did see them come out of that, but I think it's important to be transparent with your farmers and make sure they recognize that there are long-term benefits, but it's not a, yeah, it's a, it's a new technique. It is not foolproof, but it, it's a new technique, but it is important for them to recognize the long-term benefits are there. And it's not a get-rich-quick scheme either. It's, it's a way to help ease that burden as we move towards using some of these practices. Harold, anything different from your perspective? Uh, you know, Joe, in, in northern climates, establishment can be a challenge. You know, whether it's uh, in a fall establishment or, you know, it works great for a number of our crops. We have a substantial number of, of, of uh, peas, sweet peas, and sweet corn. Those come off, uh, peas come off in June and, and July, and sweet corn comes off in July and August. And, and the folks that are growing those crops have the opportunity then to plant cover crops and get them established and get some good growth. Uh, one of my friends is a University of Minnesota entomologist, and I think he worries too much about bugs and, and worms and, the, and those types of things. But when you do have that lush green cover crop, it is a, a nice place for slugs to live and, and all sorts of, of pests. So it requires an extra degree of management. You have to be concerned about those pests. And then, as Lori said, the cost. There is a cost to, to that cover crop seed. If you, you know, a lot of folks just use rye because it is the most economical, but when you start adding in the radishes and everything, your seed costs go up. Uh, airplanes don't fly uh, for free. Uh, custom applicators don't uh, come down to the farm for free either. So there's a cost involved. And just to add, you know, so I used to be an agronomist for, for nine years before I got in this role. And, and I, I was always like the conservation sustainability guy. So I, I had to deal with a lot of like, oh, who's this guy showing up on my farm, right? Uh, so one of the unique things is, is, is really working with farmers and seeing the things that they hate dealing with, right? And, and then finding solutions that help them solve those problems, right? And so, you know, some guys are like, man, I hate spinning ditches, right? Like, the, I keep having my topsoil end up my ditch and I have got to spin it out, right? Okay, what, what can we do to kind of create maybe a, a heavier residue or a cover crop program to help manage those situations? Another really great thing about our program, it's like you can just do 20 acres, right? Just kind of figure out kind of how to do it, right? Because I often tell guys it's, it's more about you have to have the want to, right, to do it. One, so it's not just like you. If you're signing up for this, you gotta you gotta see it through. Um, um, but the other thing is 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 really kind of helping to kind of having those resources for a farmer to find what works on their farm is important to us, right? It's not just the cover crop program, but really helping them kind of explore and have those opportunities to de-risk taking on these practices. So you're in the north, and cover crops are going to be really hard, right? Well, here's a financial assistance to maybe help with some of that, right? And here's technical assistance that comes along with that to help you manage it, right? If you go to our website, Farmers for Soil Health, um, they have every, every, it's got your zip, it identifies you by your zip code and it tells you who your technical assistance is, right? So you can call them right that day. And so it's, it's right there in front of farmers. It's, there's no smoke and mirrors. So it's right there. You can call them and you have that access to those, those cost share dollars. 
Well, that was just part one of two. The rest of the panel is coming tomorrow in our Friday episode, Friday episode, where we'll get into a little bit more of the specifics about how the technical side works and how producers are actually going to get paid out in 2024. So be sure to catch that conversation tomorrow. But in the meantime, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and make sure you're hitting subscribe on your Apple, Spotify, or Google Play accounts, or whatever you're using to listen to this podcast so you get notified every morning when a new episode of the Ag News Daily Podcast drops. But for now, that's all we have, so we'll let the listeners go.